The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Let's go ahead and start. We are dealing this week for the third week uh, with God's providence, the topic of God's providence. And God willing, if He provides, we will finish tonight. Um, It's a very deep topic, isn't it, as we've looked at it? The idea uh, of God's sovereignty as it overrules the everyday events of our lives. Uh, It's a controversial topic, but also can be a very comforting topic in our Christian lives. It's very encouraging to know that there is a God who rules over all the events of our lives. It's controversial in that not all of the events of our lives are comforting and wonderful things. And so when hard things happen to us, we begin to wonder, where was God in all of this? And it becomes difficult to have a sense of a a loving Heavenly Father ruling over all things when that happened to you, whatever that is, something that was very dear or precious to you or someone very dear and precious to you taken from you. And it's very difficult... Uh, to reconcile that with the doctrine of God's providence. And yet, the Bible teaches it so clearly, doesn't it? And uh, the more we look at the Scriptures, the more we see that this is certainly the teaching of Scripture. Now, by way of review, the doctrine of providence is on the first page there that God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that He, number one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties in which He created them. Number two, He cooperates with created things in every action directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do, and three, directs them to fulfill his purpose. So he uh, gives us three subcategories, grew to my mean, preservation, concurrence, and government. Preservation, God upholds everything the way it was created. He sustains it every moment. It's interesting, as I was preparing for next week's lecture, uh, this is next week, um, next week's not Monday, Thursday week, is it? Okay, so Monday, Thursday will be in two weeks. We will not have Acts in two weeks, but next week we will. We'll be talking, God willing, about the topic of miracles. Very interesting to think through the relationship between God's providence and the way He constantly upholds the universe, and therefore, how would we define a miracle? And it's, it's very challenging because if you say it's God's direct action in physical creation, you're going to have a problem because God's constantly acting in physical creation all the time, sustaining and upholding it. And so once you get that in place, then it becomes harder to define a miracle. Uh, but we can still do it. I'm just saying that God is constantly active. And once you get that idea uh, rooted, once you get it established, so many things begin to change in your life. They really do. At that point, there's a person behind the things that are occurring to you. There's a personality. There's a purpose. There is a God who rules over all these things. And that's very comforting to me. Also very challenging. So that's the idea, first, of preservation. Concurrent, secondly, is that God cooperates with all uh, created things in every action, directing their distinctive purposes to cause them to act as they do. So we worked through that. We talked about how God uh, works in inanimate creation, such as causing the sun to rise and the evil and the good. He's active in that. It doesn't just happen by accident, but God does it. He works with animals, providing for all that He has created. He works in seemingly random or chance events, things that you thought... It just happened to you by chance. Well, they don't. There's no such thing as chance. Uh, Things happen for a purpose and God rules over them. Uh, We talked about uh, events caused by God and caused by the creature as well. And we went into that in great detail later on in the outline. We talked about the affairs of nations, the rising and falling of nations. 
In Acts 17.26, it said, From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. That's very interesting, isn't it? What is the significance of that? And this is on page 2 in Acts 17.26. What is the significance of that scripture that God determined the exact time set for them and the places where they should live? Yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, does that does that include great big world shaking events like the rise and fall of the Roman Empire? Well, I think it does. That the uh, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire can ultimately be answered in the providence of God. It was God's will that em that Rome rise, and it was God's will that it fall when it did. And that's it. Uh, that's the ultimate answer. He determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. So that's a remarkable thing. Uh, we also talked about how God's providence rules over all aspects of our lives. Daily provision. Uh, this gives us the ground for giving thanks for our daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. We can thank God for the food that we, that we eat. Uh, much of it anyway. Um, some of it you may want to question. But uh, at any rate, uh, life decisions of every kind. I know, Lord, that man's life is not his own. It's not for man to direct his own steps. This is Jeremiah 10.23. Many such verses in Proverbs especially. We might make plans, but God overrules our plans for his own glory. Um, success or failure ultimately comes from the Lord. It's not from your own effort. It's not from your own striving ultimately. But it's really God who chooses and who raises one up and lowers another. No one from the east or the west or from the desert can exalt a man, but it is God who judges. He brings one down and he exalts another. Uh, children are gift from God. Talents and gifts are coming to you from the Lord. Human governments, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. Really all human hearts are in God's hand. These are just the areas of providence. Then we got into the problem of evil. We talked about it generally. We could see how uh, the doctrine of providence would bring, bring us very quickly into a problem in the area of evil. If God is good and if he rules over all things to this kind of level, to this kind of degree, we are going to run into difficulties. When we look at specific evil things that happen in the universe, in history, in our lives, and say, how can this have been from the hand of a loving God? It doesn't make any sense. It's very difficult to explain. So we can see how the doctrine of providence runs us into a problem uh, with, the, with the question of evil. We established a procedure for solving this issue. We realized we couldn't solve it through emotions or through our feelings or through anecdotal information. Couldn't solve it by saying, well, this happened and then that good thing came as a result. It's very difficult to interpret whether this thing that came did come directly as a result of that other thing. It's hard to connect the two. So really what we have to do is look at Scripture and see how Scripture deals with these things. And we saw in two case studies in particular, in the Old Testament and the New, how God uses a, a seemingly evil or in one sense definitely an evil event to bring about a very good purpose. The Old Testament example we looked at was the example of Joseph. Now how does Joseph show how God can use and even will something to be evil uh, and ultimately mean good out of it? What's the, wh what is the lesson of the life of Joseph? Alan. That is so true. Genesis 50:20, which is what Alan quoted there. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. It's still it's still up on our board there. You intended something, God intended something. Now, in one sense the somethings were identical. 
namely that Joseph should be sold as a slave into Egypt. They were identical. The it is identical in one sense. But God's it is bigger than that. He doesn't stop there. Okay? The brothers sold Joseph as a slave into Egypt for what purpose? Why did they do it? You can think of maybe two or more purposes. What are, what are some of the reasons that they would give, if they were honest, which they weren't, but if they were honest, what reasons would they really give for selling Joseph as a slave? Money would be one. Personal gain immediately. Why, why kill him? We get nothing out of it. Let's get some money. What else? Get rid of him. We don't have to deal with him anymore. He's out of our hair. Little did they know how they would have to deal with him later on. Very much would they have to deal with Joseph. But at any rate, that's what they wanted. They wanted him out. It was, it was just a very base, physical alleviation of suffering. We don't need to look at this guy anymore. And their motives were jealousy. Okay, that was the it that they intended. They intended to sell him into slavery, but their reason, their overarching reasons were reprehensible and they, they are worthy of judgment, are they not? That's a, that's a judgeable motive. What was God's overarching it? The it was the same at the lower level, namely, Joseph should be sold as a slave. But what was he intending by that? To get them into Egypt. Pre go ahead. Preservation of the family because there's going to be a famine. Yeah. That's right. You know, there's a principle there. If you look in Joseph's life, wherever Joseph was, the people who were with him were blessed. You know? It, it just everything just flowered around him, right? And so also Egypt was blessed because Joseph was there. It wasn't just God's chosen people. It wasn't just the Jews that were blessed by Joseph being there. And, and we're blessed by Joseph having been there, aren't we? I'm glad he went so that we have an example of how God can use a very evil providence, a very difficult, harsh set of circumstances. There's a number of chairs here and there. Come on in. We're all family and friends here. Just come on in and have a seat. One or two. Yes, sir. That's right. That's right. Isn't that something? How, you know, God promises them the promised land, but said you're going to be away from it for a while, for 400 years. I mean, that, I would think, to Abraham would make very little sense. I mean, and, and Abraham, for his part, was going to stay right there, and he did. I mean, he didn't leave, and he was just in that area. And, and, and so you can't, it, it'd be, what would it take to get this to be fulfilled? Well, it took this. Namely, Joseph being sold as a slave and then another so-called evil providence of a famine, uh, a very harsh and severe famine, which uh, caused them to want to go down to Egypt and, and brought that whole thing about. One of the little sub-lessons in the story of Joseph, which I brought out last time and I don't tire of reminding you of it because it actually has great pastoral ministry in your life. And that is the, the seeming harshness of God to Jacob in particular in order to accomplish his ends. Uh, he is willing to keep Jacob in the dark. He's willing to keep him basically twisting in the breeze, thinking that his son has been mauled by wild animals, looking at that bloody garment, which he probably saved. I don't know, maybe he buried it. We don't know what happened, but just what a horrible memory and what agony and grief. 
And he still was hurting from it years later, wasn't he? When he wouldn't let Benjamin go down. And you remember that whole thing when finally he relents and allows Benjamin to go. And then Benjamin's the one caught with the, with the cup and all that. And, and just, they're just ready to kill themselves. It's so horrible. Well, the, the driving force there is Jacob's pain, isn't it? Because he said, don't let anything, anything happen to Benjamin. Because if you do, we're done. We're finished. I mean, it's all over. So that's all coming out of pain, isn't it? Uh, the pain that he feels at losing Joseph. Was that pain avoidable? No question about it. What would, what would God have to do in order to free Jacob from his pain? Just tell him. Just tell him. He's not dead. <laughs> so you've been crying for nothing. He's alive. He's in Egypt. Does he eventually tell him that? Yes, he tells him that exact thing, precisely. And he says, go down. Don't be afraid. Go down. It's kind of like you could say if you were disrespectful, now you tell me. You know, I went through all these decades of suffering and grief and agony for nothing. Well, it wasn't for nothing. It was to accomplish his ends. And this is what I'm saying. Is God willing to put you through agony in order to accomplish his ends? Absolutely. He is, he is willing to put you through wrenching, difficult, hard circumstances. That's a fact. And, and the fact of the matter is, you could say, no, I don't want that. I'm not, I don't want that to happen to me. Well, that is true. But let's realize, big picture, where are we? We are on earth. We're not in heaven yet. We're not finished yet with our journey. And so therefore, it is through much hardship that we enter the kingdom of heaven. We have some hardship yet to go. It's going to be hard for us to go to heaven. Did you know, did you know that? It says it in 1 Peter 4. It is hard for the righteous to be saved. But it says, now, if it's hard for us to be saved, what would the outcome be for those who don't believe the gospel? I mean, if you think this is hard, wait till you see what happens to them. Okay, but it is hard for us to get to heaven. Very, very hard. And so, as a result, we have to be ready and expect adverse circumstances in this world. You see, J uh, Jacob actually had to go through that suffering, didn't he? For him, his own sake. He had to be sanctified. You see, God intended that suffering for him. Now, we can't go too much beyond this because the Scripture doesn't say much about character formation in Jacob. But the fact of the matter is God was at work in Jacob's life, wasn't he? Uh, he was shaping him and he was breaking him and he was working with him. Uh, there's so much evidence of this. Uh, for example, when he uh, had to wrestle with the angel before uh, Esau came and <laughs> Esau's there with how many men? 400 men. Well, what was that? A big welcoming ceremony? I don't think so. I mean, where, where were all the women and all the... I mean, it was just 400 men on horses. I mean, that's an army is what that is. And so why was... You know, Jacob had to wrestle with the angel all night long. God was working in Jacob's life. But I think of all the things that happened to him, the death of Joseph, so he thought, was one of the most severe things, probably the most severe he ever faced. Does God use that kind of pain to shape you and mold you? Yeah, he does. As a matter of fact, more than any good circumstance in your life, he uses those tough things. So, say, but I don't want it. Well, that's all right. You wouldn't choose it. God does the choosing. You know, if you, if you chose, you'd choose an easy life. And don't tell me you wouldn't. You would definitely choose an easy, comfortable life. But God isn't necessarily going to do that for you. But realize that Christ's resurrection sweetens all of this, doesn't it? Christ's resurrection means this world is not all there is. And God is even willing to put his own son through horrendously adverse circumstances to accomplish something good on the other side. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of God. So we look at that and we say, I'm not going to enjoy the cross. Well, you're not commanded to enjoy the cross. We are commanded to enjoy God. Rejoice in the Lord. Always. 
We're not commanded to rejoice in being flogged and beaten and thrown into a darkened prison. But we can sing there anyway because God never changes. That's, that's the, the, the approach here. So you, I just think it's so important to get these lessons in place before it happens to you, whatever it is. I don't know what it is. You're not going to want to hear it from me then, and I won't tell it to you then. I'll just sit next to you and cry. But I'm telling you now, okay, and getting you ready. Say, please don't let it happen to me. Well, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen to you, but God is wise and he's comforting. Okay, so we, any questions about that, about the lesson of Joseph? It's like, oh no. It's like, now that I went to that, now I'm ready for some horrible thing. And I should never have gone to that act seminar. Well, listen, it, you know, God is, God is sovereign and he brought you here. So, anyway, yes. So the, the effect of those years on Joseph's brothers. What are your thoughts on that? Apparently, um, Jacob was doting on Joseph for such a long time. His brother's reaction was, let's get rid of him. Mm-hmm. Well, then years later, we see him keeping Benjamin back. Mm-hmm. Saying, don't let Benjamin go. No, nothing's going to happen to Benjamin. Mm-hmm. His brothers mm-hmm. have learned. They don't. Their, their first reaction is, oh, leave him in Egypt. Mm-hmm. We're sorry. We couldn't bring him back. Pharaoh, mm-hmm. Pharaoh wouldn't let us bring him back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, God's at work at so many different levels. And, and I think what... what 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 he's saying and what is so so important to realize is that God's mind is so much higher than ours and he is playing a complex game of which we could never we could never fully understand I mean you think about for example a pool uh, table or a billiard table in which one ball hits another and then it hits this and, and all these chain reactions occur well it would stretch your mind to figure it all out frankly just those 12 10 balls or whatever God's not working with 10 or 12 balls he's working with 6 billion people who are making choices uh, for their lives for 70, 80 years. And after they die, another generation... I mean, he is weaving together something you can't even imagine. It's just so much higher than you. And he will not tell you how your life and how your suffering fits into the whole thing. But it fits in. It just does. Uh, so, very good point. I mean, God's working in Joseph. He's working in Joseph's brothers. He's working in Jacob. He's working in Benjamin. He's working down the road with Moses and with the Exodus. He's got the whole thing worked out. It's an incredible thing. Now, a far greater example than Joseph, of course, is the example of Jesus Christ. Uh, the, the darkest, hardest, most evil thing that's ever happened is the death of Christ on the cross. There's nothing worse than that. You can't, you can't imagine anything more, more unjust, more, more heinous than the death of Jesus Christ. And uh, it's just incredible what God has brought out of that by uh, the result of Jesus' death, by that, what some would say, harsh or adverse providence. We have eternal life. We have forgiveness of sins. Uh, now, one of the principles that we talked about last time was how free will agents, so to speak. We have to question the concept of free will. We have to guard it from, from misunderstanding. Okay? People say, well, definitely believe in free will, don't you? So, well, I don't know what you mean. You need to talk to me about it and tell me what you mean first. We're going to talk about it. Uh, the, the term free will is not found in the Bible, but human responsibility is exemplified all over the Scriptures, certainly. We're going to talk about that. But the question is, how can God hold accountable Joseph's brothers, Pontius Pilate, Annas, Caiaphas, Judas Iscariot? How can he hold these actors responsible for their actions when it's all been preordained, when it's all been written out, you know, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. How can you put that together? Well, I'm not saying that I can fully understand it, but I do think that one of the key issues, we've already alluded to it even tonight, 
One of the key issues has to be the motive of the heart. And, and we looked at that from Isaiah 10, as you remember. The Assyrian, in which God says, Woe to the Assyrian, the club of my anger, in whose hand is the rod of my wrath or chastisement. I sent him to snatch plunder and loot and trample them down like mud in the streets. But this is not what he intends. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is such and such. Why is that important? Well, for the Assyrian, it's hugely important because it's going to condemn him. For Judas, it's hugely important that he was not saying, Lord, here I am, I'm your servant. How can I help the redemptive plan of the world? I'm willing to do anything. You want me to go take 30 pieces of silver to betray a, a, a Christ that I love and cherish? I will do that. I will serve. He'll go to heaven for it. But that was not what he intended, was it? His intention was to murder. His intention was to kill. His intention was to gain, very much like Joseph's brothers. And he'll be judged for it. So the motive of the heart means a great deal, doesn't it? God's motives are different than ours. He's doing something different, higher, and therefore he's free from any accusation of evil. He's always doing good. He doesn't directly do any evil thing, ever. We do that. Satan does that. But he channels it like channeling waters. It flows through a system of gates and, and sluices and all that to accomplish his ends. And so he's free from any accusation of evil, but we stand accountable, don't we? On Judgment Day, we'll have to give an account for our motives. Any questions about that? That's a very deep topic, isn't it? Yeah. Questions, yeah. Right. In the, very, very beginning. the answer was, <laughs> we, don't we don't know. So there we go. We've got that. Okay. Um, and I've heard this analogy. I was wondering your take on it. Like mm -hmm. God created, you know, man, but He didn't create a TV. Well, so He created man, but He didn't create that evil that man then mm -hmm. committed. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. It's interesting that. Yeah, but I believe God created the TV. I really do. And I'm, I, seriously, I believe that God has nudged science and technology along every step of the way. Um, I think, you know, where did penicillin come from? Oh, it was an accident. You know, Fleming f saw that bread mold did something in a petri... Oh, come on. That was no accident. God was unfolding some aspect of his... And, and there's so many points in history along the way. But there's even a scripture verse in which it says, concerning, concerning agriculture, that if you want to know how to plant certain types of seeds in certain fields and how to handle them, his God instructs him and teaches him the right way. So God has been inspiring technology all the way along the line. But God didn't inspire evil. And so that's why I don't know how to answer your, the question. We all don't know where evil comes from. It's just so far from him. Uh, the scripture pr presents, you know, when it talks about child sacrifice, it says that it was something that God did not command, nor did it enter into his mind. Well, that's a little problematic for an omniscient God. But what he's saying is, humanly speaking, he utterly repudiates it. He hates it, the concept of child sacrifice. He's revolted by it. But it entered his mind before it entered anybody else's mind, didn't it? Because he, he foresaw all of human history. So it's, a, it's an odd thing. But he didn't create evil, and we just have to believe. See, ultimately, we're limited, and we can't answer these questions. So we just set up the ba barriers that Scripture does. And when it says his eyes are too pure to look on evil, and that it can't even enter his mind, that's a barrier. He just never does anything evil, ever. And he hates it. But we also see that he uses it huge. <laughs> I mean, he's just using it to accomplish his ends. That's a great question. Other questions? Gary? Yeah, with, with the sovereignty and all the omni things of God, mm -hmm. where's the freedom of the heart come from? Then? Or is that, that's another one of the questions we can't well, answer. We're getting to it. We're getting to it um, tonight. But um, by freedom, I guess I want to ask what you mean. What, what does freedom mean? Well, I, I'm just trying to tie it to you, what you were referring to, that it was in their heart that 
how they acted. So it sounds like they're having a free will of how to decide in their heart. Mm -hmm. Well, how do they get that freedom if God's sovereign? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's just go. Let's go to it. Since you brought it up, let's. No, that's okay. Let's uh, let's go to page six and let's deal with it directly. All right. Um, That's a good question, and it comes up. Page six. It says, "Are we free? Is that what you're asking? Do we have free will?" All right. Now, all careful theologians acknowledge that in some sense we are free to make choices. We are free to make willing choices that have significant effects. We are free to choose according to our desires and natures. Okay? But we are not free in some key senses. So let's put up some barriers. Okay? Number one, we are not free of God's sovereign control and overruling of our decisions. In other words, God, we make a choice, God makes a choice. Who wins? definitely God. And so, you know, I, I have ongoing discussion with somebody in, in the office. We talk a lot and we have amicable disagreements. Um, and, uh, you know, he said to me earlier today, he said, uh, well, um, you know, we talked about this very thing about God, you know, and I, I prayed in such a way about choices. And he said, well, I'm surprised to hear you say that, that, you know, we're making choices. I said, we're making choices all the time. It's just God also is making choices. And his choices are bigger and more important than ours. That's all. I think what it is is to our perspective, just like the Assyrian, he's not thinking about the glory of God. He's not thinking about anything but what he wants. God knows fully that thing and it's all been woven together into the tapestry. Can we jump out of his plan and do the thing that he never ordained that we do? I don't think so. Because you know what it says in Psalm 139? He says, before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. And then all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. What does that mean? What does that mean to you, Gary? When you read that, what is that? All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Very simply, God knows all their actions we're going to take before where we're put in that circumstance where we have to make a decision. Okay. God already knows which way we're going to go. That's right. Are you going to die one day later than the days ordained for you written in God's book? It's impossible, right? Did not Jesus say uh, concerning anxiety, he says, who of you by worrying can add a single... Literally, it says cubit to his span. Well, there are different ways to interpret cubit to his span, uh, but I think what it means is, can you add 18 inches to the length of your race? You know how Paul likened his life to a race? I'm running a race. Could you extend your life, your race, by 18 inches by worrying? The answer is no, you can't. But it seems to be that you can't shorten it by 18 inches either. It just is what it is. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. You can say, well, now, wait a minute. What, what about somebody who dies in a car wreck? Well, you tell me. I mean, I, I'm just reading it. All the days ordained for me. He gets in a car. He makes certain decisions. Left, right, left. Boom. How does that happen? Well, I don't fully understand that, but I do know that it didn't catch God by surprise. It was definitely part of his plan, and he didn't die one day sooner or later than was ordained for him as written in the book. So now... I guess what I'm saying is we are not free from God's sovereign control and overruling of our decisions. Secondly, and this is very important, this is so vital, very, very important when concerning the topic of free will. We are not free ever to act contrary to our nature. It's just not possible. You can't act contrary to who you are. This is what it means when Jesus says, make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Right? And then he says, you brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? What's the implication of Christ's question? How can you who are evil say anything good? You can't, meaning you can't say anything contrary to your 
nature. And if you are evil, you cannot say anything good. That's about what he's saying. And then he goes on from there. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. Now, what's interesting, if you look at the beginning, Matthew 12:33, what does it say? Make, make a tree good. Stop right there. Can you do that? It's a very interesting phrase, isn't it? I read the commentators and they blow it off as they frequently do these things. They blow it off. They say, oh, it's just a way of speaking. Saying, if you have a good tree, you'll have good. That's not what he said. It's an imperative. Make a tree good. And then its fruit will be good. Can you do that? Absolutely not. You cannot make a tree good. Okay, what about us? Are we a good tree? What does the scripture testify? Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, Jack, sorry. Well, this is what I want to ask, okay? What does the scripture testify as to our basic nature? Evil. Evil. Isn't that what it says? Isn't that Romans 3? There is no one good, no, not one. So how many good trees are there? No, one. One good tree. Jesus. He's the one good tree. The only one good tree. He's the only one. And we're all standing in his shadow, thankfully. Okay? His righteousness becomes ours. It's imputed righteousness. We get his earned, imputed righteousness. He lived it. He obeyed the law, obeyed his father, did it all. All right, but he's the only one. All right, so can you make yourself a good tree? Okay, that's another limitation. We are not free to change our basic nature. Yes? Can fertilize and then the soil water? We can fertilize. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, um, this is, I guess, this is what I, I want to get at. And this is, this is kind of a can we improve ourselves? Is there a, a program of life improvement which will make us intrinsically good? when we were intrinsically evil. What are you going to... Not apart from Christ. Not apart from Christ. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. Um, we don't have the ability to up and change ourselves. I mean, this is, this is one of the interesting things about, about, about human nature. Inside each one of us, the will is just a little slave, really. The will just runs around and does what the nature demands. We always put so much on the will. But the will just says, tell me what to do, I'll do it. <laughs> you know? and, and so the will is running around saying, tell me, well, who's in charge here? That's what the will is asking. Is who's in charge here? Who's telling me what to do? Nature is in charge. What's interesting about sanctification is we have a divided nature at this present time. You know, Romans 7. We, you know, it's like, who is in charge? I'm not quite sure. But am, I, am I controlled by the Spirit right now or by the flesh? You know, and so Galatians 5, and there's this battle and all that. It's a very challenging thing. But praise God that there's even a choice because, frankly, before Christ, there was nothing. It was no, there was nothing but sin. Martin Luther gives us illustration down here Luther likened the freedom of the unregenerate to a drunk man who tries to ride home in a donkey. This is typical Luther, by the way. You want a good time, just read some of the Luther's table talks and all that. Very earthy German guy, okay? Very offensive to us straight-laced Baptists. But anyway, here's the analogy. The freedom of the unregenerate is a drunk man who tries to ride home in a donkey. He leans too far one way and falls off on the one side or leans too far the other way and falls off on the other side. He is free to choose the side he falls off of, but not free to choose not to fall off. Okay? <laughs> so, uh, that's, so is the natural man as he tries to obey God's laws. Uh, you're going to overcompensate. You're going to go too far one way. I mean, it's just, it's just not possible for us to obey God. I mean, that, that's why no one will be justified by obeying the law. Yes? 
Well, the word will isn't in the Greek there. Yeah, so it's a little, that's just NIV trying to make it understandable. Uh, it's like born not of blood or, or something. It's, it's a harder, the Greek is harder. I haven't looked at it in a while, so I wouldn't put it, put it there as much. I think what we're looking at here, let me talk about the nature, okay, and the will. Jonathan Edwards did um, uh, work on this in Treatise on, uh, on Religious Affections. And what he's saying there is that religion, our relationship with God, uh, consists very much of the affections. He gets us out of the, uh, the two great commandments. The first and greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second is like it, love your neighbors yourself. So the essence of religion is love. So he gets that. It's essentially love for God. So then he bores in and tries to find out what that is. Okay? What he finds is that essentially we hate God. That's our natural status. Okay? Uh, we are born God-haters. That's Romans chapter 1. Insolent, arrogant, boastful, haters of God. This is our na natural state. You say, well, what does that mean, haters? Well, let's try to figure that out, okay? Inside you, this is what, what Edwards gives us, and whether you accept or not, this is, this is our trying to understand ourselves. You have the ability, it seems, to either approve or disapprove of anything. Approve is on the plus side, disapprove the minus side. You either like it or you don't like it. You love it or you hate it. So there's a, a, a different range, okay, of plus and minus, but everything's there, everything. And you know, the funny thing is you don't even know that you're doing it, right? You, you really don't. You do it with people. You do it with vegetables. You do it with sports teams. You do it with events in your life. You do it with weather patterns. You do it with everything that comes in your senses. You approve or disapprove to a greater or less degree. Right? And everything's set up. Now, what, what we're saying is that your nature has to do with how those things come down. How, how are they set up? Do you love this? Are you attracted to it? Is it engaging to you? Do you want it? Are you yearning for it? Or are you repulsed by it? Do you reject it? Are you pushed away to a greater or less degree? Now, Augustine would say, and I agree with him, that we do not have the power to change that approval and disapproval. You can't suddenly decide as an act of your will, from now on, I will love what I used to hate and I will hate what I used to love. I'm just going to do that. And today, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. And all of those things I used to love, from now on, I'm going to hate them. And all of those things I used to hate, from now on, I will, as an act of my will, choose to love them. He's saying this is the very thing you cannot do. But God can. Blessed be God. To me, that's what regeneration is. That's what it is to be a new creation in Christ. That's what it is to be born again. Is God takes a whole bunch of stuff that was on the disapproved side and moves it over onto the approved side. And he sets it up and then starts to move it further and further on the approved side as we grow in our love for God. And he takes a whole bunch of stuff on the approved side and moves it over to the disapproved side and starts to shove it further and further until we hate it the way he hates it. That's sanctification. Now, whether you accept that construct or not, I'm saying that will is not powerful enough to rearrange that line. You're not powerful enough to choose what you, you know, what you, what you used to love, now you hate what you can't do that, but God does it in us. Okay? So I don't know if this is helping Gary to understand the limitations of our freedom. You know, I've talked to people before. I have total free will. I said, are you sure? Yeah, absolute free will. I said, do you believe that you could, as an act of your will, kill yourself today? Or cut off your finger or whatever? Oh yes, I will do it then. They won't. Because they don't have it in them. Now you say, but some people do. 
So it's bad advice to give, and I would never give it because I'll get sued, okay? Uh, it's bad pastoral counseling, okay? <laughs> bad pastoral counseling. Better, better is for, you take your dyed-in-the-wool, really hardcore basketball fan. They usually have an antithesis team, whatever it is, okay? We know what they are, okay? But, you know, you've got your team, and then there's an antithesis team. Choose as an act of your will to root for, for the other one and to disroot, unroot for the one you used to root for. Can you do that? Now, those of you who aren't sports fans, yes, go ahead. But I find that sometimes I can in this respect. Mm -hmm. I find that what I invest in, I begin to like mm -hmm. over time. Is that a fair statement? I mean, is that your, does that comport with your experience? Yeah, yeah. I, but which came first, the liking and then the decision to invest in it? No, the you, you, Really? Hard to know yourself on that one. Could be that there was something in there that attracted you and you began to say, that's worth my time. I'm going to invest on it. Well, I mean, I also know that people who went to my college, you know, hated my sports team, but when they got there, they, you know, found out how great okay. it was. And then, <laughs> right. And then there's the example of green eggs and ham, the ultimate example, right? You better try it. You know, you think, you, you know, it's all based on ignorance. You never tried green eggs and ham. Try it. You'll like it. He tries it. He likes it. All right. Is that really refuting what we're saying? I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. And I think let's let's take kind of frilly examples off and go right to the core of the matter. Were we God-haters? Yes. Did we want Christ? No. What happened? God saved us. I, I think anybody who's saved will say it. It wasn't me. I didn't up and do it. Something happened to me. God worked in my life. And praise God for it. And I'm glad for it because that means he did it and he'll keep doing it until I get there. Because if not, friends, it's up to you. I mean, it is up to you. You better hold on, and you don't know what's coming, do you? So I'm saying, wow, I mean, I'm grateful that God did something in my life, all right? So this is not an ultimate answer, but I think what I'm saying is that we are not free as evil trees to become good trees. We can, to some degree, mitigate certain effects of our sin. We can give up smoking or drinking. We can stop doing, but can we stop sinning? where sin is an absence of faith. Anything that does not come from faith is sin. Anything not done to glorify God is sin. Can we do that? That's the one thing we cannot do. And God instead works in us in, in, in a mighty way. So, what is the answer to the question? Do we have freedom? In one sense, we absolutely do. We get up, we make decisions as they come to us, right? You got dressed this morning. Did you have a sense of the overriding sovereignty of God when you selected your clothes? You say, Lord, what have you willed for me to wear today? Let me know. Some would say it, yeah. But, you know, here's the thing. What I'm saying, if even a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground apart from the will of God, then is your choice of a shirt color today unimportant? No, I think it's important. Remember that the universe is made up of atoms. All right? God is very interested in little things. And so, if there's some significance to the shirt you wear or whatever, there'll be an influence from God in that matter. Are we free? Yes, we make decisions, we make choices. It's very important. Let me, I, I told a few of you about my uh, transmission story. This was two weeks ago. Was it two weeks or three? I don't know. I was so excited about this. I'm preparing this lecture on Providence, all right, and dealing with this issue. And one of the issues of Providence has to do with prayer, right? Does prayer do anything? You know, I've always struggled with this. Have any of you ever struggled with this? If there's a sovereign plan of God and all of these things are all ordained, why pray? 
You know, and, and you come to these sanctifying type answers that say, well, it's good for us. We need to pray. It doesn't do anything out there, but it sure does something in here and, and all that. Well, I don't think that that's true. I just think it's more mysterious than that. I, th- I think it's more mysterious. I think prayer actually does things, and I believe it a lot more now than I did two weeks and a day ago. All right? So, see, what happened was early, early in my Christian life, about, oh, about probably three or four months into being a Christian, I was with the guy who was discipling me, Campus Crusade for Christ, and we were uh, working on, a, on an engine. Uh, my, my engine uh, it was a V8, and we were, we were tuning it up, and he was doing some things, I was doing some things, and I was changing the spark plugs. I could not get the back spark plug threaded. Couldn't get it in there. I just couldn't. And it was so frustrating. Have you ever worked with one of those little, little meticulous things, and the more you try and fail, the shorter you, you just can't do it anymore? I mean, you try for another three seconds, and then I, I was at that level of frustration because I just couldn't get it threaded. I could feel it was cross-threaded, and you just, that's one thing you don't want to do uh, is force it. And, and so I didn't know what to do. And so my friend tried for a little while, and he couldn't get it either for some reason. I don't know what was going on. And then he stopped, and he said, Andy, let's pray. Let's <laughs> Pray. What does that have to do with my spark plug? And so I spoke out of the depth of my theological conviction. I said, why bother praying? God's going to do what he's going to do anyway. Well, that's kind of a stubborn thought that has been tough to get rid of. It's kind of tough to get rid of that one. All right. He looked shocked at me like I'd spoken blasphemy. I was ashamed and we, uh, it's time to pray. But we prayed and Lord, help us to get the spark plug in, you know. And we tried another 15, 20 minutes, couldn't get it in. And he said, well, there's a shop up the road. Let's drive there and he'll get it in. Have you ever heard a car driving without a spark plug in the cylinder? It's worse than no exhaust system. I mean, if you can imagine, have you ever heard a car with a bad exhaust system? Yes, of course you have. I mean, you hear it all around. This is worse. People were looking like half a mile up the street, like what's coming our way? And, <laughs> and they were, it was overpowered. And we went in there and... And the mechanic runs out screaming, turn it off, turn it off. And so we turned it off. He said, you're missing a spark plug. (laughs) That is true. And so I had the fresh, new, clean spark plug. He looked at me with utter disdain. He said, you couldn't get it in? I said, no. He took it out of my hand, and with one motion, he went back like that, and he walked in. His hand was empty. He's walking in. I said, where are you going? He said, to get a wrench, tighten it in. I said, where is he? He said, it's in. It was one motion, just like that. And uh, he tightens it in, and it's done. I said, how much do you want? He said, nothing. Just utter disdain. He said, just leave. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Did God answer our prayer? Yes. Oh, yes, he did. <laughs> did he answer it my way? No. <laughs> did not answer it that way. Okay. Well, let's fast forward to two weeks ago. I'm preparing an Acts seminar in Providence. And one of the things it says here is that God... All right, look at page 8. Ah, yes. Here it is, page 8. This is just Grudem's outline here. Look at the, all right, the importance of our human actions. Are our human actions important? Yes, we're still responsible for our actions. Our actions do have results and do change the course of events. Look at the third one down there. I'm telling you, I was reading this. This is right after I talked to the guy. The mechanic had told us possibility was, you know, the repair could be 800 or you need an entire transmission rebuilt could be as much as $1,600. Whereupon Chris said to me, it's only money? Is that what you said to me? You were with me. You were picking me up. Yeah, the good thing is not something 
important. You know, one of the principles I learned in the Christian life, it's easy to be righteous in somebody else's life, you know? But I was so grateful for Chris's encouragement at that moment because I was just, yeah, that's true. It's only money. Um, so went back. Anyway, up on the, up on the lift, um, he said there's transmission fluid everywhere, and that's why we'd brought it in. It was just gushing everywhere, and we just didn't know what it was. And he said, it's looking like the front seal's gone. I said, is that the good repair? He said, no. No, that's the whole rebuild. He said, but I don't know for sure. Give me a little while. So I called him back. In the intervening 20 minutes, I'm working on your outline. And at the bottom it says, prayer is one specific kind of action that has definite results and does change the course of events. All right, fine. I know, I know when I'm being spoken to. I can sense when the Lord is communicating to me. I said, Lord, I think you're talking to me, and I think you want me to pray about my transmission. All these many years later, 20 years after the spark plug, you want me to get down over there in that corner and ask you to fix my transmission. And I did. I went over there and I got down on my knees and I prayed and I asked him to fix the transmission for the cheaper amount (laughs) 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 or provide that that money that Chris was talking about so easily. You know, whatever it was, just provide. And uh, I, I didn't pray long. I just prayed and got up and kept working on page 9 and page 10 and 11 and the other things. Kept going, all right? About 10 or 15 minutes later, I called him. He said, it's finished. It's all fixed. I said, it's all fixed? He said, yeah, the, there was a drain plug loose and it was just coming out. I tightened it, poured in some extra fluid. You're all set. I said, how much? He said, free. Just come get it. Totally free. <laughs> my, I'll tell you what, my prayer life has been on fire ever since then. I've just been praying and praying for things. Praying for things. I just felt like prayer changes things. It's just amazing. Now, that whole thing's anecdotal, but Scripture says the same thing. There's a direct relationship. If you don't think so, take a minute and look. In Acts chapter 12, you'll see what I mean. In Acts 12, there's a very, very strong connection here between prayer and providence. And it has to do with Peter's miraculous escape from prison. You remember this story. What had happened was Herod arrested some of the apostles, intending to put them to death. He does put James to death. He's the first of the, of the apostles to be martyred. Cuts off his head. All right, so he, he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And so then he sees Peter and arrests him, and he puts him in prison, guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. He is locked up, and he's intending to kill him the next day. Now realize what's going on, okay? <clears throat> Remember what Jesus had said to Peter all right? He said, someday people are going to seize you and take you where you don't want to go. Right? You remember that. It's in John 21. Is this that time? It sure was looking like it. It sure was looking like this was the time that he was going to die. James had already died. God loved James as much as he loved, loved Peter. He was an apostle. He'd already been executed. Okay? But uh, look what it says in verse 5. In Acts 12:5. it says, So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Why do you think that Luke tells us that? Is he teaching us a lesson on prayer here? Among other things, yes. He is teaching us about prayer. There's a connection between the fervent prayer of that body of believers, that that corporate prayer, and Peter's situation. So he's praying. Now what happens? The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. Sentries stood, stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. 
Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and your sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then, then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark. Now look, where many people had gathered and were praying. So this is two times now we've been told that they're praying. I think there's no question that Luke is intending to link Peter's escape to the corporate prayer. Do you see that? I mean, in verse 5 and then again here. But you know what happened. He knocks on the door and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it. One of those great moments in church history. And exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. So my question is, were they really praying in faith, believing? But I don't know. But they did not believe that Peter was there, but Peter was there. And I think that there's little doubt exegetically that the Lord wants us to connect Peter's escape uh, to the corporate prayer. And he comes, they're filled with joy, they're overjoyed, uh, overjoyed and filled with joy, and they are fervent in prayer all the more. Okay? Now let me ask you a question. Did their prayer change the eternal plan of God? No. Did, did God intend that Peter die that day and because of their prayer, God extended his life beyond the days ordained for him according to Psalm 139. No. Then what does that imply about the prayer? It was part of God's plan. God ordained not only the escape, but the prayer that brought it about. Was there a connection? Absolutely. Did the people choose of their own free will, so to speak, to pray? Yes, they did. They wanted to pray. They yearned to. That's what made it genuine prayer. If it isn't from your own heart, it isn't genuine prayer. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They're going through the motions. But they wanted to pray. They loved Peter. They loved God's kingdom. They thought Peter could continue preaching and, and leading the church, and they wanted him to continue doing that. And they prayed fervently. God answered their prayer. Now, let me ask you a question. Can you understand all that? Can you put all that together? Can you? I can't. I can't. But someone once gave me the analogy of the remote control for the television. Do you understand how that works? I mean, really? <laughs> now, if you do, you're an electrical engineer and my hat's off to you. I, I praise God. But all, I would say even there, your, your knowledge is not complete. You know more than most people. But there's something going on. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you trouble yourself over that? Does it bother you that you can't fully understand the remote control on the television? Or do you use it? How about the engine of your car? Do you understand fully what's going on when you turn the ignition? Say, Lord, I'm not moving. I'm not turning this thing until you explain fully everything that happens when I turn this ignition key. And until you do, I'm not going to turn that key. You don't live that way. All right? Do you have any com commands from God to pray? Do you have any encouragements from God to pray? Do you have many encouragements from God to pray? What more do you need? And so what we should do is we should pray. And we should pray believing that our prayer actually does influence and affect things. But we should not pray thinking that in any way our prayer is changing the eternal plan of God or putting anything into his head that he says, what a great idea. Thank you. I hadn't seen it that way. But now that you've prayed, I can see your perspective. And it would be good. It would actually be a big mistake to have Peter die tonight. I think instead we'll extend his life a little. That is not happening when you pray. Not at all. Does, does that make sense? Okay. I, I was so encouraged. And I think we will be encouraged, greatly encouraged, when we pray more and more and more specifically for things. We're going to see. Reminds me of a, a basketball player 
who was talking. This guy's not a Christian. But uh, he's talking about just his practice habits and, and all the hard work he puts in. And also about just end-of-the-game shots that kept going in. He said, you know what I noticed? The more I practice, the luckier I get. Well, we can take that pagan concept and move it on in. And isn't it amazing? The more that we pray and the more we risk, so to speak, and the more we memorize Scripture and the more we strive and have effort, the more good things and fruit starts coming in our lives. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? You say, now you're starting to behave like an Arminian. No, not at all. I just think that there's cause and effect in this world. I think absolutely that God is exhorting us to be faithful to make the most of every opportunity. And when we obey Him, you know what happens? Blessings occur. Blessings absolutely occur. All right. There are a couple of things we've skipped over in the last seven minutes. I want to cover them. The decrees of God. (laughs) We're going to cover the decrees of God in six minutes. All right. What do we mean by the decrees of God? Well, first of all, understand. All right. God has a will. He wills things. Theologians have typically discerned two levels of, of the will of God. Those things that God wills and they most certainly happen and nothing can stop it and those things he wills and they do not happen. You can say, well, how could that be? Well, we would, for example, consider the laws of Moses, the Ten Commandments, for example, to be a reflection of the will of God, wouldn't we? When God says you shall not murder, he intends in one sense that you not murder. Why do you say just in one sense? Well, there's all murder happening all over the place. So he doesn't intend it or will it in a decreed sort of sense. Could God decree that there be no more murder ever again starting now and it happened? Absolutely, he could do that. He could decree. He could realize that God is holding your body together right now. He, it is within his power to make, make it happen that never again would there be murder. He could do that. Now, you could ask, why doesn't he? But I'm just trying to show you the different levels of the will of God. There is the so-called decretive or decretive will in which God decrees and it happens. And then there is what some theologians call the permissive will in which God decrees or communicates his will in a matter, but it does not happen. And that has to do with the commands and all of that. That's at the top of page 7. Now, the decrees of God, Grudem says, are the eternal plans of God whereby before the creation of the world he determined to bring about everything that happens. We've already quoted some of these. Uh, Psalm 139.16, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. The concept of your book would relate to decrees. All right? Uh, Job 14.5, man's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. Wow! I mean, that's strong, isn't it? But I don't think it's any stronger than Psalm 139.16. It's the same teaching. He just breaks it down to months. I mean, we could go down to days and hours, too. Acts 2.23, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Acts 4.27 and 28, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. That's very strong, isn't it? This is, these are the decrees of God. This is the, it was decreed by God before the foundation of the world that Jesus should die at the hands of the Jews and Gentiles together. It would be a Jewish-Gentile conglomeration working together. Jesus would die by being lifted up. He would not die by being thrown down the way that Jews executed by stoning. He would die at the hands of the Romans. But it would be the Jews that would hand him over. Ephesians 1.4, He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. 
Ephesians 2.10, For we are God's workmanship, creating Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Grudem's note, These examples from Scripture take in so many different aspects of human activity, they stand as a sample of the kinds of things that God had planned before the creation of the world. The details are infinite and speak of a comprehensive decree covering all things that come to pass. What he's saying is, it took a lot of little things to get Jesus dead on the cross, didn't it? There was a lot of stuff that had to add up to that big event. Lots of stuff had to happen. Not just Judas, but, you know, I mean, think of all the things that could go wrong. Think of your plans. You know what I'm talking about? When you have some big thing planned and then something happens? All right, well, this was even harder because Jesus has to connect the dots in one sense, of all kinds of prophecies. It's just got to be this way. It's all connected up, including, you know, like the jar of wine vinegar. You think about that? Right before Jesus died, it says, Jesus, knowing that all things had been fulfilled and in order that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, I thir-, you know, he said, I thirst. And so he was given uh, wine vinegar. Where'd that come from? Psalm 68. They gave me gall for my food and vinegar for my drink, this kind of thing. It's fulfilled. And so that Scripture might be fulfilled, said I thirst. Let me ask you a question. That Scripture mandated that some man or woman that morning fill a vessel of wine vinegar and put it relatively near the cross. Do you see that? It had to be in the near vicinity. And so it was. And I guess what I'm saying is, does it really get that detailed? Yeah, it really seems to. All right? How about gambling for Jesus' clothes? Was that predicted? Yes, Psalm 22. Well, what was involved in that? Well, there had to be a certain number of soldiers and a certain number of things to gamble for or else they would have just divided them. There had to be something to gamble for or else. They divided everything else, but the tunic they didn't want to tear. And so they said, let's not tear it. Let's gamble for it. And so they gambled for it. The things that had to work out, that stands as representative of the kinds of things that are included in the decree of God. Now, what are benefits... What is a benefit from understanding God's decrees? Well, understanding God's eternal decrees helps us to know that God does not make up plans as he goes along. He knows the end from the beginning and he will accomplish all of his good purposes. This should greatly increase our trust in him, especially in difficult circumstances, says Grudem. Now, we've already covered this. We are still responsible for our actions. Every human being makes moral choices which are significant and for which they will be held accountable. We talked about why, I think, uh, that it's connected to motive. Uh, we must never say, God willed me to do evil. You know, nor must we use a knowledge of God's will as revealed in Scripture to give us permission not to obey God. I mean, Judas could never say, I know that God intended that I hand him over, so that's why I did it. That was not his motive. And therefore, we could never say, well, I know that this is part of God's big picture. Frankly, God doesn't reveal the big picture to us. Have you noticed that? And I don't know that he ever will. We're not promised that we will ever see the big picture looking at the entire kind of control. It's, ne- it's not necessarily promised to us. But ultimately, uh, all things fit into God's plan. Our actions have results and do change the course of events. They, uh, they do. And Galatians 6, 7 and following shows this. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mat- mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Does that work in your physical life? Yeah, it really does. Does it work in your spiritual life? Certainly it does. If you sow to please the Spirit, from the Spirit, you'll reap eternal life. If you sow to please the flesh, from the flesh, you'll reap destruction. So these are the principles. There's definitely a connection there. All right. Conclusion on page 9. We must act. We must act. Calvin said this. Now it is very clear what our duty is. Thus, if the Lord has committed to us the protection of our life, our duty is to protect it. What does that mean? Look both ways before crossing the street. You could say, now, wait a minute. Okay? If all the days are ordained for me, I don't need to look anymore. 
First of all, you won't live that way. You know it. Okay, You're going to keep your eyes open and you're going to look both ways. But the fact of the matter is, it is because God has committed to us this responsibility. And as parents, we can take comfort in the fact that God protects our children, but we still protect them, don't we? It's committed to us. We watch over them. I say still, every time we're at the Kroger parking lot, I say to my kids, parking lot. And I probably always will. They'll probably be adults. And I'll be saying, parking lot, it's a parking lot. People drive insane in parking lots. There are no rules. They drive from anywhere. Be careful. Stay right near us. Why? Because I feel that's been committed to me. And does God use that? He uses that to protect my children. He really does. But ultimately, he's the protector of them. All right. Let's see what else we can cover here. I think the rest you'll probably have to read. We're out of time. Another evangelical view, the Arminian position. Ugh. Yeah, see, you're going to say it's not fair. You ran out of time, and now you don't give the alternate view. All right, that means we we'll probably have to cover it, God willing, next time. couple of things on practical applications. Do not be afraid, but trust in God. Be thankful for all good things that happen. There is no such thing as luck or chance. I want to add a fourth one. There's no such thing as Mother Nature. Okay? I want to, I want to say that. It really bothers me when I hear that such and such is the way nature intended. Okay? This bothers me and it should bother any thinking person. Nature intended. I'm sorry. Nature cannot intend. But God can intend. And if we're going to give, excuse me, if we're going to give to a sentient being, all right, the creation, all that, let's give it to God and let's give him glory. Nothing is as nature intended. All right? Evolution doesn't intend. All right? But God intends. God is provident. He rules over all things. He's our God. He's our king. And that's a comforting thing to us. In fairness, I think next time I'm going to begin with the Arminian different way of looking at these things. We'll talk about it and see it through and respond to it a little bit. And then we'll get to miracles. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time we've had tonight to study, to look into these things. These are deep things. And I pray, Father, that you would bring uh, understanding to us, Father, that we would trust in your sovereign will, that we would also be faithful to obey and to be committed to our responsibilities, Lord, that we would do the things you've called us to do. I want to thank you again for the way you answered my prayer two weeks ago concerning the transmission as a symbol, O Lord, of your faithfulness. Father, you've been just just as faithful if I had to buy a whole new rebuilt transmission. That's just your, your, your nature. You're a powerful God. But Lord, you do give us good things and you do answer our prayers. And ultimately, Lord, you want us to be faithful to pray as George Mueller did for 50,000 different things connected to his orphanage and the advance of the kingdom of heaven. I pray that you would help us to trust you in prayer and to act in such a way that the kingdom is advanced through the things that we do. We thank you, O Lord, that you have included us as co-laborers in the harvest field. Help us to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.